This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This week's episode of For Real is sponsored by Book Riot Insiders. You can bag your bookish perks with a 14-day free trial of Book Riot Insiders. If you sign up for a monthly or yearly novel subscription, the first 14 days will be free. Uh, with Book Riot Insiders, you get uh, you can make a wish list of upcoming releases. You get exclusive podcasts and newsletters. You can enter to win swag, and you will have access to the new release index, which is an awesome collection of books curated by all the books host Liberty Hardy. So you can keep track of all of the titles that are coming up that you are excited about. So come on in, get your bag of book your bag of bookish perks is waiting with Book Riot Insiders. So you can go to bookriot.com/insiders to find out more. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Yukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. We're recording this week's podcast on Thursday, August 2nd. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I'm all right. Happy August. Happy August. I was doing something today and it just hit me like how can it possibly be August already like what is even happening <laughs> it's uh it's certainly zooming um yeah I don't know and there's also we're getting to the season where lots of really exciting books are coming out um yes. I feel like you know we get to that fall time and like everything is about at the same time and you can't mm-hmm. like keep up because it's so great so that's exciting the deluge of books yeah September is just packed fall it's very exciting um, do you have any follow-up books we have talked about that you would like to report back on uh, new updates? Yeah, I do. Um, so last episode at the end, you were talking about how you were really psyched because you had just read Bad Blood, um, which is the story of Theranos, the, uh, let's say, nefarious uh, they just like a medical medical tech company. Let's go with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you were so exuberant about it. And then I was listening to my favorite murder, and it that episode came out the day that we recorded, but I hadn't listened to it yet. And at the end, Karen Kilgariff also talked about how amazing the book Bad Blood is. And yeah, and I was, and then a friend of mine was like, "Oh my gosh, that book is so good!" So I was like, "Okay, I have to read it." So um, that friend actually had ordered it, so they very generously let me borrow it, and I just zoomed through it. It was so good. Um, right. So thank you, thank you for that recommendation. Yeah, it was nuts. Like <laughs> just it's nuts. Yeah. And I kept. It was sort of. I think you touched on this in your thing where you just are like, they kept not getting caught. And you're like, how I remember I was like halfway through the book and I was like, surely they're going to get caught soon. Like this can't continue, but it does. So yeah, that was it was a great, great book. There's so many opportunities where someone said this isn't right. And then for some reason, nobody followed through on that. Like it's bananas how that happened. Like I just is shocking. Scandalous, perhaps. (laughs) At all. Hint to what we might be talking about later. Um, Well, that is excellent. Uh, I don't have any nonfiction books to follow up because I read a lot of them for stuff that's going to come up in this episode. So my recent reading will 
merge through some of our upcoming segments. Um, So with that, I guess we will shift right into our first segment, which is always new books, uh, which are books that are coming out soon, recently come out that we are excited about or have gotten the chance to read and would like to recommend. So uh, Alice, you have a good one up first, I think. Oh, I do. I was actually the second that I saw this be, like announced, I was extraordinarily excited. So last episode, I talked about how much I love um, comedic memoirs. Mm-hmm. And the comedian slash writer Guy Branham has a book that came out July 31st. It's called My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. Uh, it's through Atria Books. He uh, so Guy Branham was an alumni of uh, alumnus of uh, Chelsea lately, uh, which I didn't watch, but it seems like it was very popular. Um, he was on the Mindy Project. I know him just because I love stand up comedy, so I've heard his album, and he's very very funny. Uh, he also uh, guested. He was one of the only guests ever on My Favorite Murder uh, because they don't know anything about. Uh, sort of legal issues and how the law works. And he is, in fact, like he went to law school. Um, Yeah, he's very smart. So what I have read of his book, which is about um, 20% of it, because of course I was reading it on an e-reader. I love when people are like, I'm like 17%. And you're like, oh, I know. Wow, you're reading that book. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, so I'm like 20% through and he's talking about growing up basically in uh, on a farm in Northern California in Yuba County. And how that is very different from most people's idea of California, right? Like, you know, that there was that recent motion to split California into three states um, because the parts are so different. But he talks about that. And then he talks about um, he is also a gay comedian. And so, you know, also being this like very tall, large, you know, gay and like pretty effeminate man growing up in this farming culture in Northern California and how he didn't fit in and like how he sort of worked through that. And he talks about television as this like sort of means out of like seeing this other experience. And it's really funny and very smart. And I really like it. So um, again, that is My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture by Guy Branham. And it is out now. That is very exciting. I had to Google him because like I was not recognizing the name. And now that I see his picture, obviously I know that it is so Oh, man. I'm not good with celebrities. Like names and faces, I'm just garbage. So that was – yes, that sounds excellent. That's why we have Google. Yes. Thank goodness for Google. Um, So my first pick is not as cheerful, although it is, I think, extremely interesting. And the book is called Jello Girls, A Family History by Alice Robottom. And it came out uh, in July, July 24th from Little Brown. Uh, And this book is a family memoir and also a feminist microhistory of uh, Jello. Uh, which I love, like micro histories of weird stuff. Um, I feel like at this point I can like put together a book list of like micro histories of stuff you can find in the grocery store, but uh, that's a whole other like project. But <laughs> anyway, um, so Allie Robottom, her great 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 uncle, bought the patent for Jello from its inventor in 1899, I believe, for 450 dollars. So at the time that was a lot of money, but the Jello has since become ubiquitous in culture, and so the brought a ton of wealth and money to the family. Um, also, but also many family members believe that there's also a jello curse um, because since uh, they bought the patent, they've had suicides, cancer, alcoholism, other medical and mysteries surrounding members of the family. So lots of tragedies that they attribute perhaps to their uh, wealth 
thanks to Jello. Um, so Allie Robottom, her mom, started to try and like unravel this family history and put something together, but she died before she could finish. And so Robottom uh, finished her mother's work, and that's the publication of this book. So it's um, kind of a history of their family and motherhood and all of that different stuff together. Uh, but then also a history of Jello, looking at the different um, like marketing campaigns and stuff that Jello the company used to try and make their product more popular in culture um, and kind of what those campaigns said about the idea of womanhood and domesticity at the time that they were done. Um, so it's really kind of a fascinating, like, like almost close read of Jell-O campaigning and Jell-O marketing and stuff like that, um, along with this kind of interwoven with this family story and what it has meant. Um, and I... I'm reading it as, uh, electronically, and I don't remember how many percentages I am into it, but maybe <laughs> like a quarter-ish. Um, and it's good so far. I've, I've enjoyed it. So uh, the book is Jello Girls, A Family History by Allie Ro- or Alice. Oh, man. I wrote Alice in one place and Allie in another place. I think it's Alice Robottom. Gosh. I mean, that is an important distinction, Kim. I'm just saying. It is. I'm really – gosh, I now I want to know which one is the typo. So I'm going to just Google it again because there we now, go. With uh, I know that you said you're you're approximately twenty five percent through. Did, did do you know if she talks about the whole Bill Cosby Jello connection? Uh, I assume that she will later, but I haven't gotten there. She's still in her grandmother's childhood. Um, oh yeah, so a ways that, a ways away. Yeah, we're still a ways away. And so so the part I'm in is about her grandma her grandmother growing up as this like very wealthy child in a kind of rural community because of the jello factory um that their family or jello, you know, production that their family owns. And it is actually it is Allie Robottom, not Alice, like I wrote. So Allie Robottom, Jello Girls, a family history. Whew. Um, I had one other question. Oh, no, it was just that you were talking about the Jello curse, and I was confused about why they would think that, aside from, of course, there are a lot of tragic things happening in their family, uh, because I feel like when you hear about curses on, like, company families, it's something like the Winchesters, right, with, like, the crazy house, because, and I heard recently that this is not true, in fact, but anyway, the whole story was that she was like, oh, we're being punished because we, you know, produced this gun that killed all these people, and it's like, that one makes sense. Jello, uh, is, uh, I'm a little more confused by. Yeah, I haven't, I don't remember exactly. I think it's just a, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I'll have I to finish it and report back in the future. I kind of wish that there was some kind of tragic backstory to the Jello thing, but not something that actually hurt people. Like maybe if he stole the patent and then they're like, instead of actually paying $450 and they're like, this was the curse put upon us for stealing the Jello patent. Uh, I'm just, well, getting the patent, it was definitely a steal. Like it, the, the amount they paid for it is not even close to like how much it actually became worth later. So there is, there is that part sort of like misbegotten wealth. Mm. As part of it. But, All right. I accept that. Yeah. Okay. So, my, <laughs> sorry. I just had a lot of, I had a lot of thoughts about this book. Um, my next pick is The Victorian and the Romantic, a memoir, a love story, and a friendship across time. 
by Nell Stevens. This comes out August 7th, so the day this episode comes out, so you can buy it now. Nell Stevens also wrote Bleaker House, which is a book that I have not Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's a book I haven't read, but I have looked at with longing many times in the bookstore and then gone, you can't buy any more books. Um, that was also a memoir, but having to do with, it doesn't matter. Anyway, you should read that probably because it sounds great. And then this one, the new one, um, I originally requested it because I thought it was about the Victorian era versus the Romantic era. And I was like, that sounds great. Uh, it's, it's still great. So what it actually is, when it says a memoir, a love story, and a friendship across time, which uh, the subtitle is a little hokey, but it's she's brilliant and funny, so it's fine. So it says, history meets memoir into irresistible true life romances, one set in 19th century Rome, one in present day Paris and London, linked by a bond between women writers 100 years apart. So what this actually is, it's Nell Stevens, because it's again, kind of like a memoir. Um, she is half of it. And then the other half is the writer Elizabeth Gaskell, who I like to call the first step in like Victorian literature deep cuts, right? So you have like the number one like big hits. So you've got like the Brontes and like William Makepeace Thackeray and like all those people. And then the first step below that is like, oh, Elizabeth Gaskell. Like if you know who she is, it's like, oh yeah, you like know some stuff about Victorian lit. Um, I would also probably argue like Mary Elizabeth Braddon is in that group, but it doesn't matter. She's not in this book. So anyway, Elizabeth Gaskell <laughs> is famous for the book North and South, also made into a stellar miniseries that you should watch, um, which is basically, I call it uh, Industrialism, Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> it's so good. I love it. Anyway, um, so she wrote North and South. She also wrote The Life of Charlotte Bronte, which was the first biography to come out about Charlotte Bronte. She wrote it like right after Charlotte Bronte oh, died. Nice. She was her yes. best friend, at least according to to Elizabeth Gaskell and I think some other people. Um, but yeah, so she befriended Charlotte Bronte and actually encouraged her to marry the man that she did, who then she died in childbirth. So maybe we should be mad at Elizabeth Gaskell, but it's fine. Um, so after she wrote this biography, this the day it came out, she was like, everyone's going to be mad at me because I was trying to say what was true. So she got on a boat with her two daughters who were like in their 20s and went to Italy. She was like, I'm going to Rome. Bye, everyone. I don't want to stick around and have you all be mad at me, <laughs> which I was like, that's amazing. So what she's married to this clergyman in Manchester, which is if you have read North and South, you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. So... In Rome, she meets this man and she falls in love with him, which is, of course, for the Victorian times, especially, oh my gosh, no. So at the same time, um, sort of interwoven with those chapters is Nell Stevens having fallen in love with this um, uh, co-student from grad school. And she goes to Paris and after being like pining for him for years, they are actually in love and then like her navigating that relationship and then studying Elizabeth Gaskell for her like PhD uh, at the same time. So it's really good. I really like it. Um, anyway, again, it is The Victorian and the Romantic by Nell Stevens. That sounds very charming. Like it just sounds nice. It is. Yeah, I like that. I also have a what I think is a charming and nice book to round out new books this week, and it is called Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge by Susan Han Shutterly, and it uh, is out August 7th from Algonquin. Uh, and this is another nature book, uh, and it is all about seaweed. 
uh, specifically the seaweed off the coast of Maine. Uh, And so it's kind of, there's not a lot of narrative structure to it. It's a lot of like vignettes, I think, um, looking at like the science of studying seaweed, um, business around seaweed. So both like small um, local companies and then also like the industrial I was going to say manufacture, but there there is like manufacturing of seaweed or like growing it in um, contained areas, but that kind of the industrial like gathering of seaweed um, and then using that to talk about the stories of the men and women who study and harvest and sell and experiment on seaweed to try and understand it better in the ecosystem. Um, and there's some bits about climate change. Um, there's some stuff about the impact of humans on natural habitats and ecosystems and how kind of throwing one piece of those systems out of whack can have kind of consequences that flutter out that we don't really understand. Um, And it's just a very like charming book, right? Like it's all about seaweed, which is just like, you know, in the sea and it's lovely. And um, she's very like nice and all of the things we're writing about it. There's a whole chapter about this um, small company that is producing organic seaweed and like they have this big – not not even a big. They have a um, manufacturing facility where they like bring the seaweed in and they make all these products with it. And it's about how these people like love natural foods and want to like provide it to the world. And it's just it was really really nice. Um, so I read about half of it last weekend, and I have another half to finish up. And I I'm very much enjoying it. Uh, so that is Seaweed Chronicles: A World at the Water's Edge by Susan Han Shutterly. Yeah, I definitely had my eye on that book because you know, like you said, it's it's a charming nature book, which I am always up for. Um, Did you – oh, I was going to talk about Lululemon actually and their fake seaweed pants, but I think instead – do you know about the early man theory in terms of coming – oh, sorry, early humans. I got – I legit got yelled at by an anthropologist for saying early man. Early human um, migration from – uh, East Asia over like the land bridge, you know, that whole, the migra- basically the migration oh. to the North American continent. Yeah. Did, have, did you hear the theory about them eating seaweed? No. Mm-mm. I was watching a documentary <laughs> about early humans and they said that there was kind of like, when did humans come to North America? Because they're that t- the timeline keeps changing and they keep finding mm-hmm. like new artifacts that indicate earlier and earlier. So one of the things is an idea was that it wasn't totally across the land bridge, or at least they came across the land bridge and then ice was still covering a lot of the continent so that in order for them to get there earlier than they thought, they traveled down the Western coastline and were living off seaweed. Hmm. Interesting. This one guy was real up about that theory. He was like, this is it. Which I mean, sure, there's someone for everything with that, but uh, I kind of believed him. So maybe. That's my only seaweed idea. (laughs) Good anecdote. I appreciate that one. Cool. Um, Oh, it is time for our second sponsor, uh, which is we are sponsored by Flatiron Books. Thank you. Uh, Publishers of Black Klansmen by Ron Stallworth. So Black Klansmen is the extraordinary true story and basis for the motion, uh, sorry, major motion picture, Black Klansman, written and directed by Spike Lee about the first black detective in Colorado Springs who infiltrated the KKK. So basically, so this, yeah, the movie Black Klansman, which comes out August 10th, uh, so the week that this episode comes out, you should see it in theaters. This memoir reads like a crime thriller as it follows Ron Stallworth, the first black detective, again, in the history of the Colorado Springs Police Department. Um, he is, infiltrates the local chapter. He meets David Duke. 
uh, the terrible racist. And so, yeah. So this is a searing portrait of race relations in America from a man on the front lines. Um, So read Black Klansman and then see the movie. And thank you, Flatiron Books, for sponsoring this episode. I keep looking for that book to pop up on the new bookshelf at the library because I do want to read it because the trailers for the movie look real funny. I'm excited (laughs) about that. So there we are. All right. So uh, this week for our weekly theme, um, we decided we we went back and forth on this one, like how we were going to actually do it. But we ended up settling on something called Watergate and other scandalous reads. So the reason we want to mention or start with Watergate is uh, because August 9th, 1974 is the date that Nixon resigned the presidency, uh, basically uh, to prevent the House of Representatives from impeaching him over the Watergate scandal. Uh, And for those who need a refresher, uh, Watergate was started, the whole scandal that led to his resignation started by, or was started by a break-in by five men at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex in June of 1972. Uh, And as that story broke and as people investigated and started digging into it, it was, uh, there was a lot of effort to cover up what happened by the Nixon administration and his allies, all of which eventually led to his August 9th resignation. So uh, since this podcast is coming out August 7th, we thought we would think about Watergate and other books about uh, scandals in history because everybody loves a good scandal, I think. Uh, so yeah, that's how, we, that's how we got here. A little bit of a roundabout like... <laughs> uh, one in there. So I'm going to start because actually the book that I wanted to talk about really briefly is um, a book all about Watergate, All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Uh, and this is the book that sort of was the beginning of everything. Um, so Bernstein and Woodward are Washington Post, or were Washington Post reporters who started uh, covering Watergate by telling the story of the burglar- burglary uh, and then followed it up with a bunch of ongoing stories and headlines Um in the Washington Post, and then they eventually turned it into this book. Um, and the book uh, was published in 1974 before Nixon resigned. So it doesn't quite go up to his resignation. It goes up to um, the like revelation that Nixon had taped all of this stuff and that there were tapes that happened in, I think, 1973. Um, and so the reporting that this book is based on won them a Pulitzer Prize, and it was all very exciting. Um, and so I read this book maybe like four years ago because I was just really curious about it. It's one of the like classic texts of journalism and it's one of the great like when you talk about the importance of the fourth estate like this is the book that you hold up and be like see this is what journalists do um and so as I remember thinking about it at the time I wasn't sure that I it was a book that I would like recommend just universally to people because it is very particular to my interests as a at the time I was a journalist um and so like just loving watching journalists do their work um but it's super fun to like read about the kind of inside baseball, like what it is to be a reporter, especially a reporter back in the 1970s when we couldn't just like Google things to find them out. Like there's a whole section about them just having to like call a bunch of numbers in the phone book to try and figure out who they were looking for, Um, which like now, I don't know, you wouldn't do that anymore. You can go to the white pages online or something. Um, And so just really interesting, like kind of the story of their reporting and what went into putting all the pieces together. So um, it's a really kind of a fun, like throwback kind of a book back to when like there wasn't a scandal. Well, I guess maybe at the time there was kind of a new scandal every day because they were like uncovering more and more about this whole Watergate thing in the cover up. But um, it's just a, it's a really interesting kind of piece of history. And so um, I think it is, it's kind of exciting and fun. So uh, All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, if you are interested in Watergate, that is a good book to read about that particular scandal. As a non-journalist, I've, 
I mean, that's obviously it's a it's a really famous book. And then they made the movie out of it. Um, and I've been kind of meaning to read it for quite some time and then just haven't done it. Um, have you seen the Kirsten Dunst, Michelle Williams movie, Dick? Uh, no, I don't think so. I can't tell if you're wondering how this relates, but I promise you it super does. So no, that- I'm trying, I sound, I know what it is and I'm trying to remember if I've seen it and I don't think so. I was trying to, yeah, I don't think so. I just love it so much. For anyone who is confused, this is a movie that came out in the 90s. So before uh, Deep Throat, the the uh, informant for Woodward and Bernstein who mm-hmm. broke the news or whatever gave information about Watergate, um, yeah. before that person had revealed who he was. Um, so the whole a theory of this movie it's not obviously a legit theory but is that uh, Deep Throat was in fact two teenage girls living in the apartment complex um, and who saw <laughs> and they're played by Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams and honestly I saw that in the 90s and it taught me almost everything that I know about the Watergate scandal. Like, I didn't know who any of the key players were, but it, like, lays them all out. And I was so, like, now yeah. I know who those people are because of that. Um, like, Haldeman and, like, all this stuff. Anyway, it's great. Uh, you should watch that movie and read All the President's Men, uh, <laughs> like Kim said. Uh, mine is, uh, I have a much more sort of, I guess, it's not a tawdry book, but the scandal was. Um, let me actually pull up the official title. So it is A Vast Conspiracy, The Real Story of the Sex Scandal That Nearly Brought Down a President by Jeffrey Tobin. It came out in 2000. This is, of course, about Bill Clinton um, and the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Kim, I think we're around the same age. So when, yeah. when this scandal broke, I think it was like maybe 11-ish. Um, therefore... Mm-hmm. All of my information was filtered through my parents, who were pretty conservative. Uh, they were extraordinarily anti-Clinton. They found the whole thing, like, you know, just disgusting, et cetera. They thought he should be impeached. Um, with that kind of mentality in mind, I knew that it was going to be hard to find an unbiased book about this because it's still relatively recent, even though it was 22 years mm-hmm. ago. Um, but obviously, the Clintons still play a very large part in politics today. And uh, the the whole scandal itself was just so polarizing. But when I looked at all the books about it um, and I read the reviews, this book, A Vast Conspiracy by Jeffrey Toobin, seemed to be really unbiased. So he is the best-selling author of The Run of His Life. He also wrote um, some books about the Supreme Court. And uh, it is an insightful, unbiased uh, account of the most extraordinary public saga of our time, is what the description says. I would argue that we probably have had some more extraordinary ones since then. I know, right? Um, But basically, uh, he tells the unlikely story of the events that began over donuts in a Little Rock hotel and ended on the floor of the United States Senate with only the second vote on presidential removal in American history. So he talks about sort of the three threads of this scandal, which are um, Paula Jones, Kenneth Starr, and Monica Lewinsky, um, which creates this, you know, sort of legal, personal, and political disaster for Bill Clinton, uh, Mm -hmm. which we're still talking about today. Gosh, it was brought up in the last election, obviously, which was real dumb. However, if you want to hear, if you are kind of like, like, uh, I don't know, Kim, I don't know if you've caught up yourself. If you, like me, have kind of hazy memories of this or just didn't really, if you were born after that time and are somehow listening to this, um, then you should read this. So, again, A Vast Conspiracy, The Real Story of the Sex Scandal That Nearly Brought Down a President by Jeffrey Tubin. Yeah, I think that's a good recommendation. Jeffrey Tubin, I haven't 
I don't think I've read any of his books, but the ones he's done are super well-respected. He's a very well-known reporter on like justice and the Supreme Court and stuff like that. Um, and it makes me think like, so this week, uh, there was, or last week, I think there was an announcement that uh, Bob Woodward is writing or publishing a book about the Trump White House. And it's going to come out in September. And I think it's called Fear. Oh, something subtitle. And I can't remember. And it comes out September 11th. And as I was reading about him announcing that they're publishing this book in a, about a month, um, I just thought like, you know, if there, I, I haven't really read any of the Trump books that have come out about like the Trump you know, campaign or uh, campaign in the Trump White House and stuff. But I, I was thinking if there was one person that I would trust to like actually do good reporting and like be solidly sourced and like not lean into the like scandal of it, it's Bob Woodward. And I kind of think Jeffrey Tubin is in that same vein of like people that I would be like, yes, okay, I believe that you can write about this in a way that is, you know, fair and unbiased and, and accurate to what was going on without being, uh, extra salacious, even though we're talking about scandalous reads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so when I was thinking about scandalous reads, I kept thinking about bad blood because I feel like there's a lot of scandalous stuff in that book. Um, but of course we can't talk about that one again because I have already effused about it quite a bit. Um, so I started thinking about some other business scandal books that I have had on my TBR or that I've been thinking about. Uh, and the one that uh, kind of rose to my attention that I got excited about was called, it's called Black Edge, Inside Information, Dirty Money, and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Man on Wall Street by Sheila Kolhatgar. Um, and this is a book about uh, Wall Street and hedge funds in particular. So the book is all about a seven-year investigation by the SEC and the FBI to expose kind of this big web of corruption among hedge funds, uh, specifically a guy named Stephen Cohen and his a hedge fund called Sat, SAD Capital. Um, and so there's a bunch of stuff about insider trading and market corruption and just a whole big, vast, scandalous conspiracy. Um, it's a big chunkster of a book. And I read maybe like four chapters. Um, and I'm actually like, I'm very impressed with it so far because usually like economics books or books about the stock market, like they can be really hard to follow. I'm um, like, I really like Michael Lewis, but I thought the big short in parts was just like very dense and hard to read. And um, that's his book about Wall Street scandals. Um, but this one is super readable and it's very um, explaining without making you feel like it's dumb to have to explain what like shorting the market is. Um, so I think it's really good and I'm, I'm hoping to get to finish it because I think it's kind of interesting. And I think business scandals are kind of interesting because like a lot of it is just people being um, like too, too greedy and that's why they like have bad things happen to them. And I'm sort of like happy when that happens because like people who are greedy are jerks. So yeah, uh, the, book, the book is called Black Edge by Sheila Kohatgar. Um, I'm glad that you said it was really readable because when I, I feel like when people start using hedge fund type words, I get very mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, um, which is probably how those people are able to pull the wool over our eyes. Um, but True. so it's good that uh, people write books like this. That's fantastic. Uh, my last pick is the other uh, impeachment of, um, of a president, and uh, that is Impeached. The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy by David O. Stewart. Um, I didn't actually know very much about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. I knew that he was the only only other president who had been impeached. Uh, 
And I also, I wanted to pick someone in the 19th century because uh, our, our episode today has been, pr- except for my, of course, Victorian and the romantic, uh, our episode has been pretty mm-hmm. 20th, 21st century focused. So can't abandon my 19th century. So in 1868, Congress impeached President Andrew Johnson of Tennessee, the man who had succeeded the murdered Lincoln, bringing the nation to the brink of a second civil war. Um, so essentially, the politicians on the other side not even the other side. I'm actually still, I haven't read the book yet, so I'm confused. But it says, enraged to see the freed slaves abandoned to brutal violence at the hands of their former owners, distraught that former rebels threatened to regain control of Southern state governments, and disgusted by Johnson's brawling political style, congressional Republicans, so remember, Lincoln is a Republican, congressional Republicans seized on a legal technicality as the basis for impeachment, whether Johnson had the legal right to fire his own secretary of war, Edwin Stanton. So, Wow, what a bunch of nerds. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was perfect, Kim. Um, yeah, so <laughs> – sorry. That's – uh. Yeah. So, and, but it worked. I feel like nowadays, if Democrats tried to do that, they would, yeah, the Republicans would just be like nerds and then they would move on um, without impeaching anyone. So, Andrew Johnson got impeached. Um, I don't really know what happened from there, except for, you know, our next president, who I believe is Ulysses S. Grant. Um, if that's wrong, please tell me. You can, <laughs> our contact is at the end. Um, Sorry. Obviously, I prepped a lot for this part. So basically, again, the book is Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy by David O. Stewart. We should all read it so that we know what we're talking about when we inevitably talk about President Andrew Johnson. Thank you. That's interesting. I didn't realize that like he was basically impeached by his own party. Like that's that also seems quaint now. You know, that like your own party would be like, we don't we don't have faith in you impeachment. Like that's never going to happen now. Like that's crazy. Yeah, man. So, yeah, this scandalous reads like all of these scandals are sort of like, what? It's nothing. Who cares? Well, especially in the context of today. Exactly. Exactly. But anyway, scandals, they're fun. And uh, so there's some books you can read about them. Hooray. All right. Uh, so for our, our third segment, I think we're doing maybe like it's an adaptation of a, a the previous segment we've done before. So previously we've done fiction, nonfiction, which is take a popular fiction book of some kind and then pair nonfiction with it. Uh, but we decided to change that up a little bit this week and do uh, memoir nonfiction. So take a memoir on a topic that we have in read or enjoyed or know about and then recommend a more serious nonfiction book to pair with it if the memoir has piqued your interest, um, which I actually think is a really good idea because I often hear from people that memoir is kind of their gateway into nonfiction. Like they start reading memoirs and then they start reading the harder stuff and getting more into it. Um, I don't know if that's been your experience with other readers or. I don't know, but I did. I'm glad that you you did say that we are still claiming memoir is nonfiction because it is. It's part of part of our podcast and we love it. Of course it is. Yeah. Ridiculous. Who would say memoir is not nonfiction? I don't know, but I don't want to meet them. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So my first pair uh, is one book that I have read very recently and one I read a long time ago. And they're both uh, books 
uh, related to cancer. Uh, so the first book, the memoir, is The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind by Barbara K. Lipska. Uh, and I mentioned this one in new books um, several podcasts ago because it came out earlier this year. Um, and so Barbara Lipska is the director of the Human Brain Collection Corps at the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, where she studies mental illness and brain development. Um, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff in this memoir about what happens when, this is just kind of a side note to the cancer part of it, but what happens to brains that are donated to this institute? So like once the brain arrives, like what they have to do to preserve it and um, make sure that it's available for study at a future date um, that I thought was like gross and super interesting. So anyway, if you're interested in brain stuff, there's some of that in this book. Um, but the the main part of it is that um, early in the book, uh, she has diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, and so she goes undergoes a number of different treatments, and they kind of work to varying degrees. Um, and eventually, it uh, becomes very serious. Well, it's very serious the whole time. But uh, she has, decides to undergo this kind of new and experimental treatment to try and kind of take care of the cancer once and for all um, because it's a terminal disease otherwise. Um, and so the experimental treatment kind of Go, goes awry is not exactly the right word because it was experimental, so they didn't know exactly how she was going to respond to it. But what ended up happening is that some of the tumors in her brain continued to grow, and then other parts of her brain became, in the frontal lobe in particular, became inflamed. And so that really affected the way that she perceived the world and the way that she acted. Uh, and so she under because of this treatment, undergoes a period of what she calls madness of just her personality completely changes. She starts to act really out of character. She has all of this memory loss and a bunch of other kind of symptoms that mimic mental illness. Um, and so eventually when they are, they discover that the treatment is causing these problems, they're able to kind of course correct. And she basically just like returns to her previous personality, um, but is able to remember everything that she did and felt during this period. Um, and so she's able to write about it kind of uh, as a person kind of experiencing illness in this memoir and then also as a brain scientist looking back and explaining why she started to act certain ways and what parts of her brain were being affected at any given time. Um, so it's super fascinating. Um, and it's also very like and uh, inspirational, really. Um, she's a woman who had had cancer twice before. So this is her third round. And just like all the things she was doing to to stay with her family and all of that was really, really touching and very, very good. So I it was a very, very good memoir. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and it reminded me of a kind of more serious nonfiction book about cancer that many people probably have heard of already, um, The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee. Um, and this one is a biography of cancer. It is a like, more than 500-page book looking at the medical history of cancer. So um, kind of in the past, what cancer manifested and what historically people have tried to do to treat it, and then how our um, ways of fighting the disease have changed over time. Um, and he couples that with his uh, experiences in oncology fellow working with can cancer patients. Um, and he has these just very impactful and moving stories about um, the patients that he works with and kind of what he learns from them and what they learn about the treatment of cancer through this. Um, and uh, it's a really just like very interesting and thoughtful and um, emotionally engaging book about what cancer is and what um, how we how we try and treat it and how some of the treatments we have for it are much even worse than, not worse than the cancer, but are, are dangerous and, um, you know, difficult for people to deal with and about kind of what that is all about. So um, I thought they were two uh, interesting 
comparisons because uh, the cancer part of neuroscience is lesser mind and then learning more about cancer and cancer treatments. Um, so yeah, the memoir is The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind by Barbara Lipska. And the nonfiction pair is The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Ooh, those are uh, uh, Ooh. heavy topics, yeah. which uh, I will continue with my uh, so I was thinking about, because I talked about a bunch of, you know, uh, comedic memoirs last week, and I was thinking about what I hadn't talked about. And one is actually Wishful Drinking by Carrie Fisher, um, which is a show that I saw on Broadway, and it was as amazing as you would expect. Um, so she also has a book version of it, which is, of course, the cover is her as Princess Leia passed out. Um Carrie Fisher uh, struggled for a very long time with, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol. Her She has multiple books that kind of address it. And Wishful Drinking more talks about her time um, kind of as what it's like to sort of grow up as an uh, as a child of, of movie stars. And, you know, like what it is to like be in that um, atmosphere and environment growing up. Um, but obviously also talks about, as the title indicates, uh, drinking and all of these things. Um but the thing that really struck me and that I wanted to talk about with it was more of the pill side of things, especially because of our current opioid crisis. So um, I was looking at books that are recommended and really well-reviewed on that. And the one I found was Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic by Sam Quinones. Um, this book has won like a million awards. If you, if you look at the list, it just went on. Like, I'm not going to read them mm -hmm. all. Um, but essentially, uh, acclaimed journalist Sam Quinones weaves together two classic tales of capitalism run amok whose unintentional collision has been catastrophic. So basically talking about how we got here, right, with this uh, opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, the unfettered prescribing of pain medications during the 1990s reached its peak in Purdue Pharma's campaign to market OxyContin which you might have heard of, it's new, expensive, extremely addictive miracle painkiller. Uh, meanwhile, a massive influx of black tar heroin, cheap, potent, and originating from one small county on Mexico's west coast, independent of any drug cartel, assaulted small town and mid-sized cities across the country, driven by a brilliant, almost unbeatable marketing and distribution system. So together... These phenomena continue to lay waste to communities from Tennessee to Oregon, Indiana to New Mexico. So basically across the entire nation is its point, right? Um, Carrie Fisher's book is very funny, but obviously we have a huge problem. Um, and again, I don't – because I think I've talked about it sort of before, and I, I don't think I have a good enough handle on how bad it actually is, um, aside from, you know, like seeing numbers, right? Like we see like statistics, like, oh, like this number has gone up like since the 90s, et cetera. Um, but I still don't think I, I fully have a grasp. So I would um, – I'm fully intending on looking further into Dreamland. Um, but – Again, those full titles, Wishful Drinking by Carrie Fisher and Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic by Sam Quinones. That is interesting. Yeah, somebody in the Book Riot Insiders was just talking about Dreamland today, um, the day we're recording, um, and saying that the reporting in it is really just stellar and very, um, very good. So excellent. Oh, awesome. Hearing. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to try to cheer things up, I guess, with two books about <laughs> happiness. Um, Thank you. Yay. <laughs> 
So the memoir about happiness is The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. Uh, and this is, um, I mentioned last week, I love stump memoirs. This is this is a stump memoir um, about a woman who, um, Gretchen Rubin, who has like a, a good life. She has married. She has kids. They have a nice apartment. She has a job she enjoys, but feels like just kind of vaguely dissatisfied with how things are. And so she decides to uh, take on this very... Um, rigid and organized and like type A project to try and make herself happier. And so the book chronicles a single year where every month she takes on a different area of her life that she wants to try and improve. And she does it through um, using kind of what science tells us about happiness, um, some like philosophy and philosophers and their um, ideas about what it means to have a good life and that kind of thing. And then like testing it out in her real world. So she does stuff around her apartment. She starts pursuing hobbies. She tries to sleep more and there's just a whole bunch of it. And it's very, um, it's very light. It's very, um, it feels attainable. Like you, like I read it and I thought I could do this. I could have a happiness project. I could come up with, you know, commandments about how I think my best life would be and then go through and do things every month. And um, it's just very like, there's like a bluebird on the cover. It's very, it's very cheerful. Um, I know people, I know some people have found her as like a, a writer and an author kind of annoying. I'm just like too much, but I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, and the, the more serious nonfiction book I want to recommend with it is one called uh, The Happiness Hypothesis. Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom by Jonathan Haidt. And so this is from what, so I bought this one probably like six months ago and I haven't read it yet, but uh, it's basically like almost the same idea as the happiness project, except more philosophical. So hers is, she has some philosophy, but it's pretty light and it's pretty stuff. It's, it's a lot of like kind of philosophers she enjoys. She read about them and then tries to implement some of their more simple ideas. This one um, takes 10 big ideas about the world that kind of have emerged across different societies. So things that you can see in different philosophies in different places around the world and at different times. I'm trying to open to a chapter so I can give an example. Uh, one is, so the idea of the divided self. So he is going to explore that idea, looking at kind of how it has emerged in different societies over time, um, what science, current science tells us about ideas about the self, and then see if there are any lessons we can learn um, from that science and everything like that. So uh, to me, it seems a lot like the happiness project, except more philosophical, um, which I think is kind of, if you were going to take more of a deep dive into happiness and what it means, that might be what you're looking for. So memoir about happiness is The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. And um, a nonfiction pick is The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. I'm so glad that you chose those because, uh, yeah, my, my next ones are about prisons. So uh, – <laughs> Great job. So cheerful today. Great job with that, Kim. Uh, well, I was thinking again, and I was just like, well, what's not a, a more sort of comedy-based memoir that I've read and that I really liked? And it was actually Orange is the New Black by Piper Kerman, which I read when, of course, for the first season of Orange is the New Black came mm -hmm. out, and no one liked Piper. Uh, and I think I read some things about her that I was like, oh, I wonder what that book's actually like. And I read it and I actually really liked her. I think that she is really trying to do the right thing. Um, 
And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it as a book. So what I am going to do with the pairing is basically what Genji Kohan said she was doing with the series, right? Where she was like, I used the Trojan horse of like when I was pitching the show of this like white woman character so that I could tell the stories of these sort of more like marginalized characters. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was neat. Anyway, so the uh, the two I have two picks, uh, which I will hopefully just you know zoom right through here. So one is the new Jim Crow mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness by Michelle Alexander, um, which is where legal scholar Michelle Alexander argues that we have not ended racial caste in America; we have merely redesigned it um, so that uh, we are targeting black men through the war on drugs. Which I think I don't even know if that's up for debate. Right. I mean, I feel like just based on mm-hmm. sheer numbers. Um, and so by doing that, we are decimating communities of color. And so the U.S. criminal justice system, therefore, functions as a contemporary system of racial control, relegating millions to a permanent second class status, even as it formally adheres to the principle of colorblindness. Um, this came out in 2012. And uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, she's a brilliant writer. And it's just, uh, it's, I think it, it's had kind of a new resurgence in the last couple of years mm-hmm. um, as a book. So uh, that's The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. The other, um, because I was just doing research on other sort of hopefully similar books, and I found Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. Um, Angela Davis is, of course, uh, this very fiery social justice figure who has been um, fighting the good fight for decades upon decades. Um, What she says is that basically for generations of Americans, the abolition of slavery was just everyone thought it was impossible, right? Like, this is ingrained in our country. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to happen. And similarly, then they thought, okay, well, racial segregation, like that's going to be what did um, – the governor, Governor Wallace, right? The whole like segregation now, today, forever, mm-hmm. that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, that guy. So people were just like, no, this is going to stand. So she's saying similarly. And even with, with prison system, they used to have that whole convict lease program, right? Which was uh, also terrible. And people thought, no, that's just part of how it is. It's going to stay. So Angela Davis says, looking at history um, and patterns that the our prisons – Basically, prisons are are becoming obsolete, and then we can make them obsolete through social change, um, which is an interesting idea. Um, she calls it the mm-hmm. process of decarceration. Um, I'm I'm mm. interested in hearing arguments about it. I have a lot of questions, but um, she in it she's arguing for the transformation of society as a whole, which would of course be lovely. But anyway, so both of these books, uh, well, all three: Orange is the New Black by Piper Kerman. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good good grouping together. I, I endorse that oh, thank for you. sure. Um, yes. So now we're going to wrap up this week's podcast as we usually do with uh, what we are reading right now. Um, and I am actually listening to something um, rather than reading it, which is uh, different. I don't often listen to nonfiction on audiobooks unless it's celebrity memoirs just because – 
I I just have a harder time following it sometimes. Um, but what I'm listening to right now is called The Coming Storm by Michael Lewis. Um, and this one's actually super interesting. So Michael Lewis, he wrote uh, The Blind Side and The Big Short and a bunch of books like that. Um, and he used to be a writer for Vanity Fair. And so over the last couple of years, he's been doing um, these dispatches in, in Vanity Fair talking about the government in under the Trump administration. So not specifically about the Trump White House, but about how government agencies are functioning in this presidency. Um, and uh, a period of some time ago, I think in June, he announced that he was leaving Vanity Fair and that he was going to shift his kind of long form reporting to Audible and they were going to produce these Audible original pieces. So The Coming Storm is it's an Audible original. It's like two and a half hours long or so, um, all about um, data and the Department of Commerce and weather forecasting and a bunch of other stuff all in there um, under the Trump administration. So um, it's available. If you're an Audible member, you can get it for free through the middle of August sometime. Uh, And then if you're not, I think it's like $5. You can buy it and listen to it. And sort of like long podcasty length, uh, you know, two and a half hours. Um, and so far it's super interesting. Um, he's making some really interesting arguments about, um, how, uh, sort of what it means to have a government that is for citizens versus a government whose first priority is commercial interests. Um, and so one of the examples he uses is weather forecasting and how, um, NOAA and all these weather national weather service have, tools to do weather forecasting, but you also have these private companies that are trying to get people to pay them for weather forecasting. But most of the data that these private companies use to like improve their prediction algorithms and whatnot come from data that the government has collected and makes available for free to everyone. Um, and so it's an interesting, like, as we have an administration that prioritizes commercial interests over uh, the interests of potentially individual citizens, how that's playing out in the National Weather Service and uh, NOAA. Um, And it's just, it's it's, uh, interesting, like kind of back and forth. Um, And so I'm enjoying it very much and it may piqued my interest for uh, Michael Lewis has a book coming out in the fall called The Fifth Risk, which is kind of those Vanity Fair essays and some other reporting all about government under the Trump administration. Um, and this is a piece of that book. So it's kind of a like preview-ish of that book that you can get, but it's also kind of its own thing. Um, so I am intrigued about that future book and also kind of enjoying this little audio um, diversion of of government and politics and commercials versus commercial interests versus citizenry, which is right in my like nerd favorite happy place. So anyway, (laughs) uh, it's called The Coming Storm by Michael Lewis. That's a great title. Um, I feel like I want to argue for my particular one because it's, and I've done this before, I apologize slightly, but it's, it's technically fiction, but I feel like it should be kind of nonfiction. Um, So this is I, Claudius by Robert Graves. So what this is, is he wrote this novel um, in the uh, form of an autobiography. (laughs) I know, but okay, novel, it sounds like like you're like eating something bad and you're like, a novel. Well, because I feel bad because it's called (laughs) For Real. It's the name of our podcast. However, 
Um, I do think that this should be accepted as a nonfiction current read. I mean, not technically, but sort of. Anyway, so it's written in the form of an autobiography of the Roman Emperor Claudius. It was written in 1934. It's included uh, in, I think, the 100 best English language novels of the 20th century on one of those lists. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... It's really good. I, I, I had it for like two years and I finally picked it up. And I will say Robert Graves, the author, he translated, you know, like he got he sourced all this information from like Tacitus and Suetonius and all of these Roman historians. And he like translated their works himself. So I feel like as a historian, he had some credibility. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't mm-hmm. just like, I'm going to make stuff up about Claudius. Um it is. I know very, very little about classical history, and so that's been really interesting because he writes it in a very chatty way, which the way that he sets it up, right? He's like, okay, so all my contemporaries write in this stilted way because they have to, but I <laughs> got this message from like a Sybil that my works won't be read for, I think it's like – uh, 1200 years or something so he's like okay so i will write very candidly because no one's gonna see this until like everything i know that i know is gone and uh it's great i really like it anyway i claudius by robert graves kind of nonfiction. <laughs> close enough i i will accept that as a, a recommendation also just because it's like so different from anything that I would ever read and recommend. I appreciate that. That is the kind of book that you enjoy reading. Great. Uh, I feel like these two like currently reads are basically like my epitome of a current read and your epitome of a current read and that I find that delightful. That's great. <laughs> um, so with that, uh, that's the end of our episode. You can find us on social media with any comments or questions about this episode. I don't know why <laughs> you would have any. Um, on Twitter, I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And if you feel so inclined, please uh, go and rate and review this podcast on iTunes. This helps people find us more easily. Uh, and you can also subscribe in the podcast of your choice so that you will get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, and so with that, I am Kim Ukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.